Hi, my name is Eric Krebs. I'm a columnist at The News. Uh, I would be a senior in Jonathan Edwards College right now, but I'm on leave of absence. I'm from Queens, New York, and I'm going to be reading my most recent um, column for The News, which is called The Pandemic is Over. The Pandemic is Over. We made it through. Together again, after too long apart, we must never forget the now past pandemic's lessons. We have to remember how we made it out. Luckily, our leaders on both sides of the aisle are ahead of the curve on this reflection. Quote, health and economic impacts were tragic. Hardship and heartbreak were everywhere. White House economic advisor Lawrence Kudlow noted at the Republican National Convention, quote, but presidential leadership came swiftly and effectively with an extraordinary rescue for health and safety to successfully fight the COVID virus, end quote. You told him, Larry. But that rescue didn't come immediately. New York City was America's first epicenter, and Governor Andrew Cuomo remembers what those first few weeks felt like. Quote, this is the mountain that New Yorkers climbed, Cuomo remarked in his June 29 press conference pointing at a dramatically revealed five-foot-tall foam sculpture representing the COVID-19 New York State case curve. Quote, we don't want to climb this mountain again, he warned the cameras. The foam monument to his state's victory over COVID-19 is even getting a companion with the October release of Cuomo's new book, American Crisis, Lessons in the Leadership from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And now, months past the peak, Having learned the lessons of spring, we can return to normal. Indeed, normal is already everywhere you look. Restaurants across America have reopened for indoor dining. Primary and secondary schools in many regions have begun in-person instruction. And now colleges, too, are joining in the fun of a post-pandemic world. I can hear the campus coming back to life tonight outside my dorm window. It sounds like heaven. Just how did we do it, you ask? Well, first we, and then we, and then and after that we, uh, huh. Wait, did we do it? Wait a second. I'm not in my dorm. I'm in my childhood bedroom. I knew my sweetmates looked a little old. They're my parents. And that ambulance definitely wasn't on its way to rescue someone who blacked out at Woads. Newsflash, we didn't do it. The pandemic is not over. It's not even close to being over. It didn't have to be this way. In many countries, actually, it isn't this way. The United States is an outlier. We are an outlier among developed countries. We're an outlier among pretty much all countries, far ahead in total cases, and only behind totally comparable countries like Kuwait, Qatar, San Marino, and Brazil in terms of cases per capita. 180,000 dead in under six months. That's more people than every undergraduate class at Yale since the news first printed in 1878 combined. But why? Why have we failed so exceptionally? As The Atlantic's Ed Young put it in his Tour de Force review, Anatomy of an American Failure, quote, COVID-19 is an assault on America's body and a referendum on the ideas that animate its culture, end quote. Among those ideas is one particularly applicable to us here and now. America has failed so exceptionally precisely because we believe at our core that we are exceptional. Exceptionalism is a catalyst of failure. 
an enemy of rationality, and worst of all, it's everywhere. The United States sat still while Asia and Europe fell victim to the virus in January and February. We didn't prepare. We didn't learn. After all, what could we, the greatest country in the history of the planet, possibly learn from the rest of the world? Even as New York exploded, other states did little to prepare. What could they possibly have to learn from New York? As late as April 24th, Columnists like the New York Times' Brett Stevens were writing things like, quote, America shouldn't have to play by New York rules, arguing that the state was simply exceptional in the death it fell victim to. Surprise, it wasn't. As the tides finally began to change in the Northeast, the virus surged in the summer and overwhelmed the rest of the country. Catastrophic attempts at reopening in one state were simply repeated in another. Leaders learned nothing. After all, when you're the exception, the experiences of others just don't apply. And yet, the president still contends that all of that simply didn't happen, contends that the virus is still just a New York problem. Quote, with the exception of New York and a few other locations, we've done much better than most other countries in dealing with the China virus. Much of these countries are now having a major second wave. The fake news is working overtime to make the USA and me look as bad as possible, he tweeted on August 3rd. His majesty has a way with words. Even within states, exceptionalism reigned. Bungled reopenings of indoor dining and bars have repeatedly blown up town after town, mayor after mayor. Exceptionalism has reigned even from person to person. Doesn't it make your blood boil to take this seriously and see people on social media act like the rules and guidelines just don't apply to them? It should. Doesn't it make you feel like a sucker for even caring? Now, let's bring it on home. Colleges, too, have fallen ill to an epidemic of exceptionalism. Campus reopenings, one after another, have turned into super-spreader events. The University of Alabama has already racked up over a 1,000 cases, University of Michigan has 281, and University of Notre Dame has 473, to name a few. Does every school need to see firsthand that telling kids not to party, putting up dividers, and crossing their fingers just doesn't work? There is no denying that Yale, as an institution, has taken reopening more seriously than many other schools. But have we taken it more seriously than the fully remote Johns Hopkins? But protocols, even really well thought out ones, can only do so much. As an August 18th article in the news discusses, quote, opinions differ as to whether students will cooperate with protocols, a doubt School of Public Health Dean Sten Vermond dubbed the, quote, million dollar question. With all due respect to Vermin's expertise, and with a degree of admiration for his faith in us, I don't think it's a million-dollar question. I need not ascribe ulterior motives to Yale's administration, never mind room and board revenue, nor do I have to make wild conjectures about what is to come to think that maybe, just maybe, what has already happened at practically every other campus in the country can tell us something about what will happen at ours. For the record, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that Yale made the right call. I hope that this semester goes swimmingly, that no one gets sick. Maybe Yale students will follow the rules other students have failed to follow. Maybe we have what it takes to do it right. 
After all, this is a school at which students are made to feel that they are exceptional by nature of their acceptance. It is a school that is touted as an exceptional organ of an exceptional world full of exceptional people, people who do exceptional things, and who, by virtue of all their exceptionality, are necessarily the exception to the rule. We'll be fine, right? If this absolute nightmare of senseless, wholly preventable suffering has proven anything, it's that a world in which we are all entitled to our own exception, where we can carry on as if our personal pandemics are over, is a world in which this nightmare never ends. For as long as the pandemic is over, the pandemic will rage on and on and on. Thank you so much, Eric. So when I was reading your column, um, something I really wanted to ask you is what was your inspiration and motivation for writing this column right now? Thank you, Allison, for having me. Um, yeah, so I, I think the inspiration for this column was sort of six months of really deep and uh, lasting disappointment. Um and and all of the things that come with that um, grief, right? You know, anger, frustration. Um, you know, <laughs> a sense of nihilism. Like I can't believe that this is is happening, and I can't believe that this is happening here. Um, and I wanted to write something that I would say formally. I wanted to do the sort of satirical thing, which. Um, I wanted to do the satirical thing, I think, for two reasons. One is I like to have words on the internet with my name on it that will haunt me forever and seem really bad when you first look at them. Uh, that's really fun and, and is a good investment in, for my career. And the second thing is I think people are like really ready and um, expecting like a rant the entire time. And I, you know, I didn't want to give that uh, to them. And I, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to be the 90th person to to rant about this the whole time. Um, and I really got to thinking, what can I say, you know, as a, as a humble college newspaper columnist that other people haven't said or that is pertinent to right, like my positionality as a writer and the audience that I'm reaching, right? I'm not going to do sort of a an Ed Young style policy review, because you can go read that, you know, you can go read The Atlantic, you can go read Ed Young, I don't have anything to add there. Um, so it really started with the sort of funny idea of writing a column titled The Pandemic is Over, um, when it's so obviously not. And then thinking about all the ways in which we've sort of walked around believing that it's over and treating it like it's over. And I think a lot of, of liberals and, and, and highly educated people, right, and, and people who would be reading the YDN might think of the sort of noncompliance and, and absolute absurdity of the United States' pandemic response, which is, like, uniquely terrible, Um as a product of just Trump or as a product of just like conservatism or, or um, and I'm not gonna, I'm not like trying to do the both sides thing. There's, there's no way that you can um, 
unravel our response without encountering the president and his like cabal of of henchmen. Um, but at the same time, like we are repeating the mistakes that we have seen so many times before us um, right here at Yale. Yale is doing it. Um, so we're really not exempt. Um, and, you know, the, it's a weird irony that a place that is so good at teaching, um, people can't seem to learn. Um, and I hope it doesn't take, you know, people getting sick or, or worst case scenario, dying for them to learn. Do you feel like it was right for universities to bring students back this year? So that's a tough question, right? Um, I would say my gut would be no. Um, and the evidence seems to align with that gut reaction. Um, I'm also not a university administrator, nor am I an epidemiologist, so I don't want to be like an armchair version of either of those. Um, where I think the specific, right, failure is, is again, when schools that are opening up weeks um, after other schools have begun their sort of uh, trials as the guinea pigs and have seen how terribly these things have gone elsewhere that it they don't seem to have uh, be be changing course right I know that Yale over the summer they did things like they started with uh, what was it once a week testing and then it moved to twice a week testing and things and it, it's you know at some point you gotta recognize that the model of a university is you bring people together from everywhere, you put them in close quarters, you pack them into seminar rooms and dorms, and that's the that's the fun of it. That is what this is built for. And that is totally incompatible with what um, the, the public health situation demands. Um, I think in the United States overall, we have put a focus on the wrong schools, right? Um, we know that university students can can take online classes. Obviously, it's some penalty to their ability to learn. Obviously, um, at some but a kindergartner needs to be in the classroom much more than a um, a university student does. So I think universities as a whole um, have been a a bit careless in giving themselves primacy when there are other schools and right. Like, how much risk are we willing? to to take as a nation um but at the same time sans some form of economic relief right yale is unique in in the size of our endowment the the sort of depth of our pockets but you know it's it's a it's a tough situation and and sans some some form of economic relief i can't blame uh universities for for not wanting to become insolvent over the course of a year at the same time um yeah, it's it's it seems a little silly and dangerous. Right. So you're a senior, or you were going to be a senior, and you you mentioned that you're on a leave of absence right now. Can you tell us a little bit about your like personal experience and feelings, kind of looking in on students starting a new school year? Right. Um, yeah. So I am. I can take that question. I can I can expand on it, and I'll I'll get to your point um, very quickly. So I I came home from school at the beginning of spring break, as most people did, um, not expecting to <laughs> not go back, um, and I came home to Queens, um, which was the country's first big epicenter. My mom literally works in a a public school in Corona Queens, which by some 
like terrible combination of irony and fate um, was and housing policy and poverty that has led to like overcrowding and doubling up and things like that in Corona Queens was the first gigantic epicenter. So I was really, you know, at the heart of it. Um, my dad is, is of course I wasn't at the heart of it. I wasn't working in a hospital. Um, but, um, I think it, the whole thing started like, um, getting hit by a train, right? Um, and then seeing the rest of the country standing down the line and there's this really gigantic train that's moving towards them and, and you've been yelling at them to get off the tracks for, for like weeks and they still haven't gotten off the tracks and some of them have actively, you know, gotten on the tracks. So it was really a terrible sense of like, I cannot believe this has already happened here and I cannot believe that we have not taken the logical steps as a country to prevent this from happening elsewhere. Now, um, things changed, right, over the course of the summer, and as New York, you know, saw the other side eventually, um, you know, for now, um, and other places really got hit, um, it was a weird, you know, weird sense of relief and also just this awful feeling of, like, I cannot believe that this is still going on. And that we haven't learned and that we haven't done, you know, like this isn't still going on at this magnitude anywhere else. Um, I, it's, it just so didn't have to happen. Now, when it comes to students going back, right, um, I have to say, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to take a leave of absence, right? I have a bedroom that I can stay in. My family you know, loves me and has, has welcomed me back into our home, you know, um, and, you know, I understand. And I, I would say I feel really bad, right, seeing um, uh, uh, students and especially like first years, you know, watching them vlog about their and about their uh, experiences. And I'm like, you know, damn, you know, I remember how formative those first few weeks of college were, not because of like what classes I was taking, but because of the people and the events and all these things in it. It, you know, it's just sad. Um, I also think that that, you know, and this is something that I was going to write about, but I couldn't verify, you know, concretely enough to, to put my name to it. So instead, I'll just say it um, from what I understand for for a lot of students, basically the way their financial aid packages worked out, they made, it made uh, more economic sense to go back to New Haven or move on back on campus than it did to stay home. And that seems a little silly, right? I think, I think economists, right, and, and administrators know how incentives work. And if the goal is to de-densify campus and de-densify New Haven, um, then <laughs> that's not how you do it. I also think that, um, you can see where the university's priorities are, right? Of course, the university's priorities are their students. Of course, the university's priority are their staff. You know, it's it's not a governing agency. But when you have such outsized power in a city like New Haven, right? And I think President Salve uh, sent an email out, you know, earlier in the summer um, that was basically like, oh, Connecticut has, you know, some of the lowest transmission rates in the country. So you should feel safe going back. You know, you don't usually use the purity, the the uh, purity of a body of water um, as evidence for the reason why you should, like, take a risk at polluting it. Um, that's a, unless you're not concerned about the people who are still there. All right. So, 
you know, and then top all those rational feelings off with like a gigantic sense of weird FOMO. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, but I think a lot of other people have it much harder. Um, and I'm just very grateful to be where I am. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Angle. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.